to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Welcome back to our recent developments in business and corporate litigation podcast series. My name is Jessica Mendelson, and I'm an associate at Paul Hastings in Palo Alto, California, where I practice employment law with a focus on employee mobility and trade secrets. I'm the co-editor of the ABA's Recent Developments in Business and Corporate Litigation 2020 book and the co-chair of publications for the Business and Corporate Litigation section. My co-host today is Alex Maturi. Thanks, Jessica. Hi, everyone. My name is Alex Maturi, and like Jessica, I'm also an associate at Paul Hastings. I'm based in Chicago, Illinois, where I practice employment law. I am the vice chair of publications for the Business and Corporate Litigation section, and I'm also the co-chair of the Chicago Bar Association's Labor and Employment Committee. Thanks, Alex. Today we have two fantastic speakers joining us to discuss recent developments in intellectual property law. Sheila Swaroop is a partner at Kenobi Martins, where she advises on pre-litigation strategy and enforcement and the litigation of intellectual property disputes through trial and appeal in district court, the International Trade Commission, and the Patent Trial and Appeal Board. Barbara Brath is a partner at Kirkland & Ellis, where she represents clients in patent, trademark, trade secret, and copyright matters involving a broad range of technologies. Sheila and Barbara both bring unique perspectives and insights with regards to the development of intellectual property law and how the practice continues to change. So Sheila and Barbara, I want to thank you both for joining us today and welcome to the podcast. Can you both introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about your practices? Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Uh, thank you, Jessica and Alex. Uh, this is uh, Sheila Swaroop, and as mentioned in the introduction, I litigate cases in the intellectual property area and have done so for the past 20 years at Kenobi Martins. Uh, many of the cases I have worked on have been in the medical device and pharmaceutical areas. And I've also litigated cases for clients in areas such as consumer goods, battery cases for smartphones and, and sporting goods. Um, in intellectual property, we come across a wide variety of innovations, which, uh, which keeps the, the practice very interesting. Hi, this is Barbara. Thanks for having me. Um, as Jessica mentioned, I represent clients in a broad range of IP matters in litigation relating to everything from computer-aided design software to smartphones, water filters, two-way radios, and even spinal derotation instruments. Uh, I've handled cases in most of the popular patent jurisdictions, including the Eastern District of Texas, Delaware, Northern District of California. Um, while much of my practice has been on the defense side, including defending against non-practicing entities, I've also seen my fair share of competitor on competitor and plaintiff side cases. Um, in fact, we just recently secured a $764 million verdict for Motorola against its competitor, Hytera, in a four-month-long trade secret and copyright trial in the Northern District of Illinois. Wow. Thank you so much. Um, so tell us, Barbara and Sheila, what were some of the highlights in the IP area within the last year? Well, so on the patent front at a high level, the first half of 2020 saw an increase in new patent case filings. This was a bit of a surprise since the number of filings had been decreasing every year 
between 2015 and 2019. It looks like some of this may have been fueled by non-practicing entities filing several suits. And some people are actually speculating that investors are reallocating capital to litigation funding in light of COVID. So that might be spurring the increase as well. Uh, when it comes to case law developments, there were some interesting decisions on patent eligibility from the federal circuit, especially in the life sciences area. The court found two diagnostic patents not patent eligible. In Athena v. Mayo, um, the court dealt with a patent relating to methods for diagnosing neurological disorders by detecting certain antibodies. The federal circuit found that the patent claimed a natural law, so basically that correlation between the presence of the antibodies and neurological diseases. In another case, Cleveland Clinic v. True Health, the court looked at patents claiming methods for diagnosing heart disease by looking at the level of certain enzymes in the blood. And again, the court said the patents were directed to a natural law, this correlation between the enzyme levels and the risk of heart disease. One interesting thing about Cleveland Clinic is that the PTO had issued guidance that said that claims similar to those the federal circuit said were invalid were in fact patent eligible. But the federal circuit said the courts are not bound by the PTO's guidance. So that's something to keep in mind. Uh, another couple cases in that area, the federal circuit found the patents to be patent eligible. So one was Endo v. Teva. The federal circuit found valid a patent covering a method for treating pain in patients with impaired kidney function. And then in Illumina the Ariosa, the federal circuit, found valid a patent covering a method of preparation. In that case, it was separating cell-free fetal DNA from a mother's blood. So some people have started to argue that there's this divide between diagnostic patents and then treatment or method of preparation patents. Another patent validity-related issue that saw interesting decisions was the on-sale bar. Um, as many of you may know, that rule prevents an invention from being patented if it was for sale over a year prior to the patent application filing. In Helsin v. Teva, the Supreme Court held that the on-sale bar applies under the AIA, just like it did under pre-AIA rules, even if the buyer is required to keep the invention confidential. So the aspects of the invention aren't actually disclosed to the public. Keep in mind that this was the rule before the Supreme Court was just confirming that the rule had not changed. Another thing to keep in mind about the on-sale bar is that it applies to inventions that are ready for patenting when they're sold. In Barry v. Medtronic, the Federal Circuit dealt with the meaning of ready for patenting. In that case, Dr. Barry had conducted several spinal derotation surgeries more than a year before he filed for his patent. But the Federal Circuit held that the on-sale bar did not apply because his technique was not ready for patenting until it had been tested on multiple spinal deformities and Dr. Barry had done follow-up appointments confirming that the procedures had worked as intended. Turning to trademarks, there were some interesting Supreme Court decisions in that area. First, uh, the Supreme Court eliminated bars to getting certain types of trademarks. In Iancu v. Brunetti, the Supreme Court held that the Trademark Act's 
provision precluding registration of immoral or scandalous trademarks violated the First Amendment. Uh, so this meant those provisions could not be used to bar registrations of marks like fucked for uh, a clothing line. And another decision, booking.com, the Supreme Court held that there is no per se rule against registering so-called generic.com marks, where the mark consists of a generic term plus.com, again, possibly paving the way for booking.com to get its mark registered. Uh, in another type of case, uh, the Supreme Court said in Romag v. Fossil that a showing of willfulness is not necessarily required to get infringers' profits under the Lanham Act. Keep in mind, though, that the Supreme Court did leave open the possibility that willfulness can be considered as a, quote, highly important consideration in deciding whether to award infringers' profits. And then finally, on the trademark front, in Lucky Brand v. Marcel Fashions, the Supreme Court refused to recognize so-called defense preclusion, which was a novel type of preclusion that the Second Circuit had created, um, basically preventing parties from raising defenses that they could have but didn't raise in an earlier lawsuit. And now uh, turning it over to Sheila to talk about some developments in the PTAB and copyright law. Great. Thanks, Barbara. Yeah, I'm going to briefly touch on some of the happenings at the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, uh, which we refer to as the PTAB, which was created by the America Act in 2012 to um, administer new proceedings for challenging patent validity. Um, so one trend uh, that we've seen is a um, decline in the number of new petitions that are being filed with the Patent Trial and Appeal Board. And... Um, there, there was initial high interest in, in these petitions when the act first came into effect, and we've kind of seen that uh, decline over time. Um, in terms of outcomes, when these matters make it to a final written decision with the PTAB, um, the Pat Patent Office recently shared some statistics from their, their most complete fiscal year 2019, um, showing that about 21% of decisions result in a favorable finding for the patent owner that all claims are patentable, about 24% resulted in a mixed decision, and about 55% resulted in a finding of unpatentability for all claims. So that kind of gives you a sense of, of the, the outcomes of these matters um, when they do make it all the way through to a final uh, written decision. Um, there's also been some interesting decisions uh, relating to how these PTAB proceedings are administered and, and how they are reviewed on appeal. And I think the biggest and most important one, that, and that is going to be the subject of I think, future activity through legislation and potentially the Supreme Court, um, was the Arthrex versus Smith and Nephew decision. And, and that case addressed the constitutionality of the process by which administrative patent judges um, are appointed. And these are the judges that, that oversee these PTAB proceedings. And so in Arthrex, uh, the Federal Circuit attempted to resolve the constitutionality issue by striking a provision um, relating to these appointments of, of these judges. Um, but again, that the issue still seems unresolved, and, and we'll get to that later in, in the podcast. Um, another interesting decision uh, from the Federal Circuit was in uh, Crimar Systems versus ALE United States. 
Um, and that decision addressed the impact that a PTAB decision can have on um, earlier district court decisions relating to validity infringe and infringement of the same patent that's later challenged at the PTAB. Um, and so that case has generated a lot of interest and, and there was a cert petition filed with the Supreme Court on that case, um, which was uh, recently denied. Um, another area that's uh, been of interest is the extent to which PTAB decisions are reviewable. And um, that's a, there's some provisions in the, in the statute that talk about what aspects of the PTAB decisions are, are reviewable and which are not. And in uh, Thrive versus click-to-call technologies, um, the Supreme Court, uh, again, uh, confirmed that um, the PTAB's decisions on, particularly in this issue on time bar determinations, you know, whether a petition has been uh, properly filed within the required statutory time period, um, that decision is, is not, uh, not reviewable. Um, and then there's also been uh, some decisions about um, what factors the um, PTAB can apply when deciding to institute a decision when there is a pending district court litigation also ongoing at the same time. That was the uh, Apple v. FinTab decision from the PTAB. Um, and then last, uh, last point here on, on PTAB, um, the Federal Circuit has also clarified that um, there's only certain types of invalidity challenges that can be heard by the PTAB. And so in a, in a case involving Samsung, the Federal Circuit confirmed that um, the PTAB cannot cancel claims based on an invalidity challenge on indefiniteness, um, but, but can hear you know, prior art challenges as set forth by the statute. Um, and then I also wanted to also quickly cover some recent decisions in, in copyright law that have been of interest over the past year. Um, so one is that there, there has been a debate among the circuits and a split among the circuits as to what is required to actually bring a claim for copyright infringement. And so copyright exists when a work is created, um, but to ultimately obtain a copyright, an applicant needs to register its copyright with the Copyright Office through an application process. Thank you both for that excellent rundown of recent IP highlights. Uh, now, taking a step back, what have been the biggest changes to your practice of IP law in the last few years? This is Barbara again. Uh, <clears throat> I'm sure a lot of IP lawyers are sick about hearing uh, about Alice, um, but I, I have to bring it up. Uh, that, that was the Supreme Court's 2014 decision uh, relating to patent eligibility. Uh, as a result of that case or using that case, over 1,000 patents, um, or at least some of the claims in those patents, were invalidated um, based on eligibility grounds between 2014 and 2019. That's quadruple the number in previous years. So obviously had a huge impact. Um, in the last couple of years, actually, the number of Alice challenges, uh, particularly successful ones, has decreased. Um, some people speculate that that's in part because the Federal Circuit in 2018 had these two rulings, Berkheimer and Atrix, that said that step two of Alice, whether there's an inventive concept um, in the patents, may involve factual disputes. So that made it harder to challenge a patent on eligibility grounds early in a case. 
Um, another reason for the decrease recently uh, might be that plaintiffs have gotten wiser and started adding allegations to complaints to avoid motions to dismiss um, on 101 grounds. And in fact, uh, drafting claims of new patents um, to address some of these issues raised um, in recent 101 cases. And then, of course, the case law itself has been involving. Um, so what's considered patent eligible has, has also arguably changed over the last few years. Um, one interesting thing on the Section 101 front is that Chief Judge Stark in Delaware has started holding what he calls Section 101 days, uh, where he listens to multiple unrelated Section 101 motions in a single day. So from completely different cases, several different law firms essentially arguing all at once, and then he hands down the decisions um, the day of the argument. So that's, that's definitely been an interesting development. Um, I, it seems like he's trying to get a little bit more consistency um, in the Section 101 realm um, by doing those hearings altogether. Uh, another big development that, that's changed by practice has uh, was T.C. Heartland. So in 2017, as you might recall, the Supreme Court discarded what most considered the controlling venue rule at the time, which effectively allowed a plaintiff to file a lawsuit anywhere. And a lot of times plaintiffs were choosing the Eastern District of Texas because that court had a reputation for being plaintiff friendly, um, even though a lot of companies didn't actually have offices or were not incorporated there. Uh, in TC Heartland, the Supreme Court held that patent cases have to be filed where the defendant is either incorporated or has a regular and established place of business. Courts are still grappling with the parameters of the phrase regular and established place of business. In fact, um, just this year, in in Ray Google, the Federal Circuit held that a leased server rack can be a place, uh, but a place of business generally requires an employee or agent of the defendant to be conducting business at that place. So that definition may be involving, but one thing is clear. TC Heartland has changed where people are filing lawsuits. Um, they're fewer and fewer cases being filed in the Eastern District of Texas, especially as companies like Apple close their stores um, in that area so they no longer have what are arguably uh, regular and established places of business in that district. Um, by 2018, Delaware actually surpassed the Eastern District of Texas as the most popular patent venue. And then in the last year and a half or so, the Western District of Texas has emerged as uh, the most uh, popular patent venue. Um, Judge Albright, who was recently appointed, has gone out of his way to make the Western District of Texas appealing to plaintiffs um, by saying that he'll address cases quickly and coming up with other rules to make it an appealing venue. So the Western District of Texas has now surpassed um, all these other districts that were considered more popular in past years. And I believe it's on pace to have over 600 patent-related cases this year, about 80% of which uh, were filed by non-practicing entities. Another development in recent years that's affected my practice has to do with trade secret law. So in 2016, uh, the Federal Defend Trade Secrets Act was enacted, 
And that resulted in a lot more trade secret cases being brought in federal court. Um, This may be in part because trade secret plaintiffs seek and can get TROs or preliminary injunctions more frequently than patent plaintiffs. Um, It may be because they can uh, get disgorgement of the defendant's profits. Um, But either way, I've definitely seen in my own cases more trade secret claims being brought in addition to or even instead of patent claims. And on that front, um, an interesting development is that more and more courts are requiring trade secret plaintiffs to describe their trade secrets in some detail before discovery can move forward in the case. Um, California and Massachusetts actually have statutory requirements for this type of trade secret identification. And then other courts in Delaware, Florida, New York, North Carolina have adopted similar requirements through case law. I guess the last thing I'll say on recent developments um, that have changed my practice is an increase in case complexity. Um, We're seeing more and more multi-patent and multi-jurisdiction cases being filed. So you'll have uh, two parties that have cases in multiple districts in the U.S., um, in the ITC, in the PTAB, in foreign countries, um, litigating patent cases in certain uh, jurisdictions, maybe trade secret uh, or copyright in other jurisdictions. And so you have essentially a a worldwide uh, litigation going forward with uh, higher and higher asserted damages as well. So despite the decreasing number of patent cases being filed in the last five years, Uh, companies are actually seeing their annual spend on IP litigation matters go up. I think I saw one study that said that for large companies, at least, the spend on IP litigation increased from $1.7 billion in 2005 to $3.3 billion in 2019. Okay, great. So I'll jump in with, uh, I guess, some of the changes to uh, my practice that I've seen over the past few years. Um, I I think the first is that, um, as as we mentioned earlier, the enactment of the American Invents Act and the creation of uh, the new forum for challenging patents has probably been one of the biggest uh, changes. And factoring this PTAB strategy into an overall patent litigation strategy has has definitely been um, one of the biggest um, changes in terms of considering how those proceedings um, interplay with with other forums for enforcing and litigating patents um, in terms of timing, in terms of the the difference um, in legal standards that, that may be applied. Um, so, so that's definitely been been a big change. Um, I think another, which is one Barbara, I think also mentioned, is the International Trade Commission or the ITC, which is an administrative um, agency in Washington, D.C., that has definitely become uh, more increasingly used um, for IP enforcement. And I, I think there's a number of reasons for that, in- including the fact that um, the ITC has some pretty powerful remedies in terms of cease and desist orders and exclusion orders uh, preventing the importation of products, um, the speed at which the ITC operates, um, and um, the way that the ITC does or does not defer to other administrative agencies in terms of, of rulings on, on patent validity. I think those factors have made the ITC um, become um, 
of interest to patent litigants. Um, so that's certainly a trend that we've seen. Um, on the patent damages front, there's been some interesting case law uh, discussing you know, apportionment of damages and how that needs to be done. Um, there's also a recent uh, Supreme Court case, Western Gecko, um, which uh, discusses the ability to potentially obtain um, damages uh, based on activities um, outside of the United States. And then I think the last and final um, issue I wanted to mention here in terms of changes to the practice is that the Supreme Court in a case called Octane Fitness um, made it uh, a little bit easier for parties to recover attorney's fees in patent cases by uh, relaxing the standard uh, of proof and making it making the inquiry a little bit more flexible. And so um, we've definitely seen some effects um, relating to those types of fee motions um, in our cases as well. Great. Uh, it seems like there's been a lot of exciting developments um, in the recent years in the intellectual property front. Uh, is there anything big on the horizon that we should be aware of? Yes, this is Sheila again, and there's there's two that I wanted to highlight. So the first is um, kind of the ongoing effects of the Arthrex versus Smith and Nephew decision that I mentioned earlier. Um, so again, that, that case dealt with the um, constitutionality of the process by which the administrative patent judges who oversee PTAB proceedings, um, how that how that appointment process works. And so the, the federal circuit um, found the provisions unconstitutional and, and attempted to address the issue by striking that provision. But there's still some unanswered questions about um, whether that applies um, to, to ongoing um, PTAB proceedings, whether it, it applies uh, to proceedings that have already occurred. Um, there's been a lot of uncertainty and litigation over this issue. Um, the case is uh, going to be heard by the Supreme Court in October, so there may be some questions addressed by that. Um, there's also been some attempts uh, to, to deal with this legislatively as well. So I think that's something to keep an eye on as we um, sort of monitor both on the, the court side and the legislative side how um, the, the, the constitutionality of these of the, the, the PTAB appointment process, how that plays out. Um, the second one I wanted to highlight is in the copyright uh, area, and that is the case involving Oracle and Google, um, which deals with the copyrightability of um, application program interfaces or APIs um, for the Android operating system. And so there's been prolonged litigation between Oracle and Google um, relating to um, this software code and um, multiple district court proceedings um, that have gone to the federal circuit um, and are now uh, going to the Supreme Court um, dealing with issues as to whether the software code is protectable by copyright. And if it is, you know, what, what are the parameters of um, fair use for, for this software code? So, um, again, stay tuned for that. There will be a Supreme Court argument in October um, on uh, on that uh, on that case. And this is Barbara again. I guess I'll also raise two things to look for. Um, one is on the Section 101 front. I, I know I have brought it up a couple times now, but that is an area that has been evolving, and a lot of people expected Congress and or the Supreme Court to step in um, in 2019 uh, or 2020 and provide more clarity on where the eligibility line falls. 
um, in May last year, the Congress considered a draft bill that would, among other things, have required Section 101 to be construed in favor of eligibility and eliminated all the judicial exceptions uh, to patent eligibility that had uh, been created over the years. But in January 2020, the sponsoring senators abandoned the bill. So we didn't get any guidance from Congress. Um, And despite several cert petitions being filed, uh, the Supreme Court also refused to step in. So this is an area that's ripe for some uh, either congressional or Supreme Court guidance. And and maybe that's something that we'll get um, in the next term. The second thing that I wanted to raise are standard essential patents. So these are patents that uh, relate to standards that a lot of companies are using in a certain space. Um, So Wi-Fi or cell networks. Um, And they have to license their patents on uh, what's called FRAND, Fair, Reasonable, and Non-Discriminatory Terms. And uh, this area is evolving right now. There are disputes all around the world about the issue. Just this month, a German court held that a standard essential SCP patent holder um, can offer different rates to competing licensees without violating its obligation to offer the patent on FRAND terms. And there's also an ongoing battle between TCL and Ericsson um, that might change some of the rules on how FRAND terms are actually decided in court. Um, The federal circuit ruled uh, at the end of last year that Ericsson, the standard essential patent holder, had the right to a jury trial to determine what the royalty rate should be for its patents. And TCL has asked the Supreme Court to reverse um, and basically say that there is no right to a jury um, because this is not just a a damages issue, it's really a breach of contract and a specific performance issue. So a bench trial is more appropriate here. So we may see further developments um, on that front in the next Supreme Court term. Wow, fascinating and and something for us all to look out for. So as an attorney whose practice doesn't center on intellectual property, I'm curious, what are some of the unique aspects about IP law that lawyers in other areas should be aware of? Well, as Sheila mentioned, uh, IP litigators are often operating on two tracks at the same time. So you have the PTAB um, and district court sometimes with different firms representing a single party in each forum. Uh, But the decisions and statements made in uh, one case may impact what you can say in another case, whether the other case moves forward, and even the outcome of the other case. So it's really important to coordinate uh, between the various cases, consider the interplay between them, Um, And especially if you have other firms, make sure that um, the firms are coordinating with each other. Um, Similarly, you have many companies that are are both making and facing patent eligibility challenges. And so we've had clients who are hesitant to file Section 101 motions, those motions that I keep talking about regarding patent eligibility, because some of the arguments they make may impact their own patent So we, as their lawyers, often need to consider whether or not it's worth it to make these types of arguments if those 
arguments can be used against them later to invalidate a patent that maybe they want to assert. And this is uh, Sheila. So I, I would um, just say that I think intellectual property is unique in that we deal with uh, technology and with clients who are constantly evolving, coming up with new ideas. And so there's always a lot to learn on the client side in terms of their innovations and, and what they're working on. And at the same time, the, the law is always evolving. So as, as you've seen from this presentation, the federal circuit is a very busy court. And so there's been uh, lots of decisions um, on IP issues. And so the combination of, you know, constantly changing technology and constantly changing law make, makes the practice very interesting. And, and I think the, the other point, which Barbara alluded to as well, is that companies often find themselves on, on both sides of an issue when it comes to intellectual property. So they may be, you know, seeking to um, protect their own innovations and, um, and enforce that, but at the same time, they could be defending against uh, potential claims of infringement. And so, um, you know, sort of balancing that and, um, you know, understanding the, the law on, on, on both sides of the issue, I think makes intellectual property law a little bit different maybe than, than other areas where you may be typically on, on sort of having one position consistently um, for, for a given client on, on a particular issue. Very interesting. Well, well, thank you both so much for joining us and for sharing your insights, Sheila and Barbara. Um, I hope everybody will join us on our next podcast as we delve into some of the chapters from the book and hear the perspectives of other great business law practitioners on the recent trends in their areas and on how they're adapting to the changing landscape in these unique times. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Sections podcast series, To the Extent That. The section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.